0: This is... Conquering Columbus. Hey everybody, this is Mike here, and you're listening to the Conquering Columbus podcast. Every week on this show, Josh and I interview people we believe are conquering their careers and work around Columbus. And this episode, we're talking with Roger Blackwell about his new book, co authored by OSU Professor Roger Bailey Objective Prosperity How Behavioral Economics Can Improve Outcomes for You, Your Business, and Your Nation. And early on in the episode, we asked Roger about some specifics related to the book, such as how they
1: defined prosperity. The person who wrote the foreword of the book, John Mariotti. After he read the book, he figured that out. We wanted people to develop their own concept of prosperity. Now we define it for nations. We can look at Switzerland, say they're $10,000 more per household. We can look at nations like the Netherlands and Saudi Arabia, and there are metrics there. But for an individual, prosperity is defined by their own goals of what do they want to achieve in their life. And that's why reviewers said, you never define prosperity because we want the reader to develop prosperity from their own perspective of what that means for them.
0: Later, we discuss some of the key characteristics that make communities and nations prosperous, at least according to the
1: statistics. Family stability and an emphasis on education. And if you don't have that in your community, you will be not prosperous. You will have more divorce, you'll have more homicides, you'll have more of everything than when you have a communal attachment to doing things that are good for each other. And that's one of the keys. You look at one of the examples is Dave Thomas that many people in Columbus would know about. We wrap up the show talking about where the title of the book originated and what objective prosperity really is. Look at it empirically. You just close your mind. I'm not gonna be socialist, I'm not gonna be communist, I'm not gonna be democratic or republican. I'm gonna find out what works. That's what we mean by objective prosperity, and that's what the book is about. Josh and I enjoyed
0: the opportunity to talk with Roger and learn more about his new book, and we hope you get some insights from our conversation with him that help you become more prosperous in your own lives. All right, that's enough for me. Let's dive into the interview. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Conquering Columbus podcast. I'm Mike. There's Josh. Josh, how you doing?
2: I'm good, dude. Um, Nothing too crazy going on in my life. I'm at a weird, weird point in my life, too, where one day you feel like you're 10,000 miles in the sky and the next day you feel like you're six feet underground. And so it's like a roller coaster of emotion, mm-hmm. not maybe four feet under, not fully dead. but right. Six <laughs> feet like, underground is a lot. That's I feel like I'm that. only a good 24 inches away from being dead some right. days. Right, right. It's been a challenge, but I'm, I'm, you know, it's good. I'm glad to be here.
0: Yeah. Well, that's good. I'm glad that, uh, you know, it sounds like you're, you know, at least you're, you're having the 10,000 feet in the air experience every once in a while. So it can't be that bad. But uh, no, yeah, it's uh, today is Tuesday. It is a uh, December day and the Buckeyes have made the college football playoff, which is fantastic news for all of us Buckeyes out here. But uh, today on the show, we have a guest we're bringing back for the second time. Mr. Roger. Second Blackwell. or third. time. Second or third time. It could be. I, I think, it's, it's, I think it's two. I think it's two. I thought it was third. Uh, you know, that's why I do the outline. But uh, <laughs> Roger. The
2: first time was double good.
0: That's double why. good. Right. Yeah, exactly. So today on the show, we've got Roger Blackwell joining us. And Roger has a Ph.D. in marketing and business and has been a professor at universities like Ohio State in the past. He has served on numerous boards and happens to serve on the board of FMX, where I work today. And uh, he has recently co-authored a new book with OSU professor Roger Bailey, Objective Prosperity, How Behavioral Economics Can Improve Outcomes for You, Your Business, and Your Nation. So we're really excited to have Roger on to talk about the findings from this new book and catch up with him since we last spoke almost five years ago on the show. So if you want to go all the way back, it's episode 71. So welcome back to Conquering Columbus, Roger. I'm very pleased to be here. Yeah, excited to have you and talk a little more about the book and Objective Prosperity. But for those of our listeners who might not know you or might not be familiar with you, can you just quick little background on yourself and and kind of your story? Now, if you want to learn more, you can go check out episode 71. Or my
1: website, actually. Uh, The background is I started out in the Missouri Ozarks. Uh, If you've ever seen the TV program Ozark, and they go out in the mountains sometimes and talk to farmers in there, those are my relatives they're talking to. (laughs) Well, not literally, but... uh, Something like that. And I uh, went to the University of Missouri for a bachelor's and a master's. Mm -hmm. Got my PhD at Northwestern Mm -hmm. and came to Ohio State. Couldn't get a job anyplace else, so I just stayed for 40 years. That's not true. I did teach at Stanford and several universities in Africa Mm -hmm. and various places. And like you said, I served on a number of public boards and Mm -hmm. private boards.
0: So when Ohio State and Northwestern play, who are you rooting for?
1: Well, uh, I can actually... Cheer for Northwestern, Mm -hmm. my alma mater, Mm -hmm. with no possibility of regret from anybody else because everybody knows Northwestern (laughs) produces more scholars than athletes. Right,
0: right. Yeah. It's uh, well, I mean, but they do have every once in a while they'll pull a team together. Occasionally
1: they do, that's true.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the last time we spoke, there'd been, you'd been working on a couple of different things, but you recently wrote this book. So I'm curious, I guess, to start just diving right into the book and talking about that. Like, first off, how'd you even get the idea for the topic? What was
1: the, what was the idea and why'd you want to write a book about it? Well, prosperity has been a topic that I've been interested in for many years. You know, I taught 65,000 students at Ohio State and everywhere I go, literally most places in the world, students come up to me and tell me the course helped them in their careers and so forth. And in the early 90s, I had a sabbatical to go to 14 countries to study why people were prosperous in one country and not in the others. And I wrote a book on that, published by the Ohio State Press, which was my first non-textbook. And then I wrote other textbooks uh, too, but, mo- but that got me into writing books for the popular. Uh, President Gordon Gee came to me and said, he knew about the sabbatical and research I was doing. He said, can you help us take the knowledge we get at the university, beyond the brick walls, out to the public. And I said, well, maybe. And uh, that's how that book came called From the Edge of the World. And since then, I've studied that. The current book is much more analytical than the other, the first one was, which was in 1994 when that one was published. And I've had the opportunity to teach and work in 40 different countries and observe personally, why are there people in Switzerland more prosperous per household than we are in the U.S. And Singapore, where I've taught many times, and Canada and Australia, and even in countries like Bangladesh, which had the highest increase in highly prosperous, over $5 million people of any country in the world recently. So it's always been a topic of research. And a lot of people say, what did you do during the pandemic? My answer is I wrote a book. (laughs) Yeah. And I was fortunate to have Roger Bailey, who is a professor at Ohio State, he's director of the full-time MBA program there. If we have any listeners who are interested in MBA, you might meet Roger Bailey Mm -hmm. in that process. He has an undergraduate and master's degree in mathematics and a PhD in economics and is absolutely brilliant. That's the best way to write a book is find somebody smarter than you to help Mm -hmm. you. Right. (laughs) And he and I wrote it together. And uh, uh, that's how the book came about. Mm -hmm. The purpose of the book was to help other people improve their own prosperity. Mm -hmm. I would say the ideal market target is people in their 20s. If you've looked at the Amazon reviews of the book, one of the persons on there said, this is the book I wish I had read when I was in the 20s, -hmm. but now that I'm in my 50s, I'm buying it for holiday gifts for my three sons who, who are in their 20s. So if anybody wants to know, what does it take to really be prosperous. Mm-hmm. That's what the book is for.
2: Can we start by just defining prosperity? Because I think so many of these conversations go back to kind of, you know, what, what are the fundamental axioms that you're using to, to build your thesis on?
1: Josh, you just put your finger on a key that we didn't do by purpose. We never defined prosperity. And the person who wrote the foreword of the book, John Mariotti, after he read the book, he figured that out. We wanted people to develop their own concept of prosperity. Now, we define it for nations. We can look at Switzerland, say they're $10,000 more per household. We can look at nations like the Netherlands and Saudi Arabia, and there are metrics there. But for an individual, prosperity is defined by their own goals of what Mm -hmm. do they want to achieve in their life. And that's why reviewers said, you never define prosperity, Mm. because we want the reader to develop prosperity from their own perspective of what that means for
0: them. So even that ten thousand dollars, real quick. That ten you said ten thousand dollars more per household. Is that GDP? Is that earnings? That's per That's GDP per
1: okay. income per household. And sometimes we look at income, and sometimes we look at uh, GDP. They're mm-hmm. highly correlated, but not always the same.
2: So you sit down with with you know two brilliant minds talking about to writing a book with a lot of kind of ambiguity in the beginning. Though, how do you go about trying to figure out what? ultimate message you want someone to take away from the book?
1: With examples. In fact, one of the reviewers of the early copy of the manuscript said, your chapters are too long. Can you put in some sidebars to break it up a little bit? Mm -hmm. And we did. Mm -hmm. Every chapter has from two to four sidebars, which are examples of people who became very prosperous. And most of the ones we use are people who didn't start out that way. Because most of the people who have high income Mm-hmm. or high wealth, didn't inherit it. They got it some other way. And anyone who, there are three ways to distribute the income of a nation. One of those is lottery. And if you are lucky enough to win the birth lottery, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some people do. But of the all the millionaires in the US, it's only about 10% who inherited it. Mm-hmm. And there's a famous economist, Tom, Thomas Piketty, the French guy who sold 2.7 million copies I'd be happy with a fraction of that. And he says that most of the wealth comes from inherited capital. His numbers are absolutely wrong. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Even on income, they're just wrong because most of the people in the U.S. and Mm -hmm. other countries, they achieve high income, and income's not the same as wealth, but they achieve high income because of meritocracy. So what it sounds like to me, right, and and I've peeked at the book and I've read a little bit
0: of it, it reminds me of uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, but applied specifically like, hey, no, we're going to look at it and say, hey, what does it take to be prosperous, right? What are the habits you can build to be prosperous? What are the steps you can take to be prosperous?
1: You're absolutely right. And Seven Habits and and Dave Ramsey's uh, Money Makeover and some of these are books that we quote Mm -hmm. quite a bit. Uh, Some of the reviewers said they bring together the thoughts of a lot of different Mm -hmm. profound thinkers into a place that you can just read them and look at them. If you know what the KIPP schools do with kids typically from low-income areas, Mm -hmm. like here in Columbus, most of their students come from Linden area and the school is wonderful and a very high percentage, and this is true all over because KIPP schools are everywhere. Mm -hmm. I've heard 85 to 90% of their students graduate from college, Mm -hmm. even though they have low-income and most people would call disadvantaged background, they make it. Why? Well, if you go into a KIPP school, look around in every classroom. I'm told, I haven't (laughs) looked at every classroom, but uh, they have signs with two phrases. And it's their whole theme, work hard and be nice. There's nobody in this world that can't be prosperous if they do those two things. Mm -hmm. And, And we give examples of that. Now, that doesn't Say it comes easy. You might say, "Well, I, I I don't want to work hard. Tell me how I can be prosperous without working hard." I don't have an answer for to that one.
0: <laughs> uh, if you did, then you'd be selling quite a few copies of the
1: book, or uh, I'd sell quite a few lottery tickets. Right? Yeah, exactly.
0: But the, so I'm curious. You know, when you think about the title of the book, right? Objective prosperity. We talk about economics right in the title. Yes. Some people might find that intimidating. How do how do people? Right, you know, what would you tell those people? Like, hey, economics is it is it in depth is this, is this textbook reading or is this a, a you know hey a, a simple explanation
1: it's a simple explanation but let me read you the first sentence of the foreword by john mm-hmm. mariotti stop reading this book now do i have your attention don't make the mistake i almost made by being put off by economics in mm-hmm. the subtitle yeah probably a lot of people would be more interested if we just said how to get rich for sure right <laughs> uh, and and the objective part of prosperity is the key. Now, everybody has opinions about whether we should have free tuition for Mm -hmm. students, whether we should have Medicare for all, whether we should have all of these sorts of things. And our approach is not interested in people's opinions, interested in just the facts, just the facts. What makes a nation prosperous? And it's the same thing as what makes a company prosperous. We have companies right here in Columbus that have family owned, more than a hundred years successful. Why? You go in there and it's their corporate culture. And that's a behavioral dimension Mm -hmm. rather than just how much capital they raised or that sort of thing. And if you have prosperous people and prosperous companies, you have a prosperous nation. And, And we ask the question sometimes, why are some nations poor and some rich? And I've done that. I've had 65,000 students in my classes at Ohio State, and I've done it in 40 different countries. And the answer you frequently get, what would you say most people would give as an answer? Most people? Or what I would give? Let me think about this. Most people. If you ask, why are some countries rich and some poor? Probably
0: colonialism, imperialism.
2: Mm, education is what they would probably say, I would assume. Education. I don't think it's possible. the right answer.
1: Well, I can report to you empirically the answer I've gotten over the years in many different countries is natural resources. Ah, yeah, that makes sense. And yet, if natural resources were the answer, what country would be the richest in the world? Uh, Saudi Arabia or, well, I mean, Qatar, you know, oil countries. Well, right? here's, an interesting, here's an interesting question. Saudi Arabia, is the average person in Saudi Arabia or the Netherlands richer? I would say the average person is richer in the Netherlands. Absolutely. That's good. And it's not natural resources for the Netherlands. Sure. Because they don't have any natural resources. They didn't even have land. They had Mm -hmm. to push the ocean out with dikes in order to create agricultural land. Mm -hmm. And if you looked at what country has the most natural resources. It's Russia. Mm Any way you look, it's Russia. They have more oil. They have more diamonds and gold. They have twice as much land as either Canada or the U.S. And countries like Venezuela and uh, Brazil and Nigeria are rich in natural resources and among the poorest in the world. It's the values of the people. Mm-hmm. And you might say, well, you can't change the values, can you? Oh, yes, you can. And the best example of that, it, you can do it for individuals, but when you're talking about nations, the best example is Singapore. In 1950, Singapore was one of the poorest countries in the world, four or $500 per capita income. Today, their income in Singapore is higher per person than in the US. Mm -hmm. Now, why? It's because they changed their values and Lee Kuan Yew led them into that. And now, if you've ever seen the movie, Crazy Rich Asians, there's a lot of truth into that movie. And I've been to Singapore many times and I I like to jog where I go because you meet people that way and you see what's really going on. And sometimes in seminars, when I'm teaching a seminar, I'll say, how many have been to Singapore mm-hmm. and a few hands will go up and I'll say dirty country, right? They'll say, oh no, there's not, there's, you'll never see Can't a Can't chew gum, right? And that, that's the joke you, I always hear is you, so you're you not can, allowed to chew gum. Yeah. Which is a misunderstanding. You're allowed to chew it. You're just not allowed to buy it without a prescription. Yeah. And if you're an American and you go to Singapore, you can take your gum with you. And it's okay to chew it, but it's not okay to throw it on the ground. Right. There's no dirt in Singapore. There's no poverty in Singapore, and there is no crime in Singapore. I mean, there are exceptions, but not much. And you study Singapore and Switzerland, which are both more prosperous than the U.S. Mm-hmm. on a per-person basis. And you see those are the values. Those countries are almost identical in their values. And yet you couldn't find two countries more different than temperature and uh location, mountains, and 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 neither one of them have many uh, natural resources. Singapore is very small, but they went from 1 million people in 1950 mm-hmm. to 6 million people now, but they don't let people in that don't have the values that make you successful, hmm. prosperous. And it's a lesson that is useful for the US, of course, too.
2: And so in theory, it sounds nice to think about, you know, breaking down prosperity into objective Attributes or or tactical things that happen throughout you know your life or within the economy, but as you start to actually try to measure that, like I mean, even thinking about what you're saying with respect to the different countries and their level of prosperity, I'm I'm thinking back like you know does that tie back to the the way the governments run and the fundamentals there? Or, you know, so how do you begin to actually try to boil things down and then distill it into a book like this?
1: Well, you look at the data on the on the countries, and a lot of people talk about socialism and capitalism. We're not socialist in this book. We're not capitalists in this book. We're solutionist. You only look at the things that work, that are solutions to actual problems. And you compare the data in countries like China and Venezuela and oh. Russia with countries like Switzerland and Canada and Australia and the U.S. And you say, okay, what's the difference? And it's individualism versus collectivism. If you have individuals making the decisions, guess what? The nation runs much better than when a group, call it the Politburo or call it the CCP, or a small group of people making decisions collectively for everyone else, those countries are, do not do well. And the people in them don't do well. And that's where you have data to look at if countries have individualistically determined political systems versus collectivists, they do much better. And you can call it freedom. You can call it per, uh, property rights. You can call it quite a few things. And we look at all of those. For example, when the pilgrims came to the U.S., were they communists or capitalists? Oh, this feels like one of those trick questions. It is. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am going to go ahead and say
0: communist now that yeah. you you know but I, but the way you asked it tricked yeah, me they, in they, I would not they, have
1: said they, that before you asked that question. Right. They weren't literally communist but they were socialist. Mm-hmm. All property was owned in common. Mm-hmm. All the pilgrims f- worked and farmed and did all these things and by the and and there, and if you worked hard or if you didn't you got the same thing. Sure. It was everything mm-hmm. you needed was given according to your need not according to what you earned. Mhm. And they were, half of the people died within a year. they starved because that doesn't work. Then they reorganized the whole thing and allocated cattle and property to each individual family. Each family got what they did themselves. And guess what? It prospered. And a lot of people, like you said, probably don't know that. The Mm -hmm. first Thanksgiving was very different. Yeah, (laughs) It wasn't Thanksgiving. They were just about half of them alive. Right. And if you organize as... Collectivists, you don't do as well, Mm -hmm. objectively measured any way you want to measure it. You can do the, the same thing. Why do Jewish groups earn higher income than non Jewish groups? And they will talk about loyalty to the community. Well, it is loyalty to the community, but it's individual hard work. Two things that are true of the groups, whether it's Asian Americans or Jewish Americans or any other group. Mm-hmm. It's family stability and an emphasis on education. And if you don't have that in your community, you will be not prosperous. You will have more divorce. You'll have mm-hmm. more homicides. You'll have more of everything than when you have a communal attachment to doing things that are good for each other. And that's one of the keys. You look at one of the examples is Dave Thomas that many people in Columbus would know about. And what college did he graduate from? Do you know? I'm going to guess he didn't go to college. You guessed it right. Uh, He went to the 10th grade. He didn't even know his birth parents. And we give a lot of examples from disadvantaged, disenfranchised communities in the book. And he's one. He didn't know his birth parents. His father, his adoptive father, wasn't able to keep a job. And his adoptive mother died at a very young age. But he got values from his adoptive grandmother. And he would come to Ohio State classes. Uh, I, I, I worked for Dave quite a bit in the early years. And so he was very kind if I asked him to come and lecture to class. And my classes had 750 mm-hmm. students in them, Independence Hall. And he'd come there and, you know, he was a 10th grade education. And it wasn't a very high level presentation. He just told people how he did it. And one time he had a bunch of cards that his assistant had prepared for him and he dropped them as he walked into the stage. He just talked and some of the students said, Mr. Thomas, how do you be successful? You've got all these, we read those corporate values on your website. And his answer was just be nice. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. You know. Now, there are academic studies of this. Mm-hmm. person who's done the most of those is named Deidre McCloskey. She's a professor at the University of Illinois in three different departments, economics, mm-hmm. history, and literature. And- Which that means she knows her history, she knows her economics, but she also uses interesting language. Mm -hmm. And she doesn't call it economics, she calls it humanomics. And what her very serious academic articles, she's one of the most quoted person in economic history, Mm -hmm. is the degree to which people in a nation care about each other and for each other is one of the determinants of the prosperity of a nation.
0: That what we just said, right? Nations that where people truly care about each other and and go out of their way to do good things for each other are more prosperous, right? Right. That makes sense on a fundamental level. But does that make it more difficult for larger nations to be prosperous? I mean, because if you look at like the U.S., right, it's a lot easier for me to think about a place like, uh, I don't know, let me think of a good Switzerland, right? Much smaller. You know, a lot more people. You feel a lot closer with the people in Switzerland. Whereas in the U.S., hey, I care about Ohio right? I know my people, I care about Columbus, I care about Ohio, but it's hard for, I think, people in one area to say, hey, man, I really care about those people up in Alaska.
1: Yes and no. It is true that it might be harder to hear people about California. Mm -hmm. That's why they're all moving from California to Florida (laughs) and Texas, and Elon Musk moves his plants and everything Mm -hmm. else. But actually, the U.S. started out in the 1800s, only average. It achieved its high level today, a very large nation. Because of its core values. Mm-hmm. And they're kind of agrarian. If you grew up on a farm, who works? Right. Which family members work? Everybody. On Only those who want to eat. Right. <laughs> and there are no child labor laws. Okay. Yep. You get up, you work. Until 1950s, most Americans grew up on a farm. Now, it changed after that. And that's probably why we have some of the divisions is we have lost the agrarian nations. You can go up to Holmes County, Ohio, and still see them practiced Mm -hmm. among the Amish people. But the reality is that Switzerland is one of my favorite examples because they have four distinct ethnicities, four official languages. And the, the official groups there, you know, we say it's racism here, racism there. They have not races, but they have four ethnicities, French, German, Italian, and Romance, small group. But now I have actually heard people in Switzerland from the German groups talk about their filthy Italian brothers. And you can objectively drive into the Italian series sectors of the the nation and see there's a huge difference in cleanliness. However, if you think about what that person said about his Italian brothers, Mm -hmm. that's the key. Now, one of the ways they get that is every male and women voluntarily serve in the military. And if you're going to be in a foxhole with somebody from Italy, the Italian section of Switzerland, and you're German, or you're Romance, mm-hmm. what do you learn to do? <laughs> you trust learn them. to Gotta trust them. get along with that guy or person. And, 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 and today, uh, one of the most interesting statistics about Switzerland, in addition to higher prosperity, about $10,000 more than the U.S., mm-hmm. they also have less crime. One of the reasons is because every home has a gun in it. And people trained to use it, and ammunition, usually locked up, protected. Now, if, you, if every home has a gun, how many thieves do you have breaking into homes? None, none. And they, their crime rate is half of what it is in the U.S. Mm-hmm. But they also have people who are very different backgrounds. A lot of, lot of uh, Islam and uh, Jewish and Christian people working along, right alongside each other in the same organizations but they serve together in the military and they know that if they're ever invaded, they're going to serve together with the person they're working with. Mm -hmm. They have the similar values, the Swiss values. And 25% of all the people in Switzerland are immigrants, workers, Mm -hmm. but they're not citizens until they prove to the local officials that they have Swiss values. That's different than the way we do it here in the U.S. And the same thing is true in Singapore. And... When you look at the way they do it, cleanliness, a lot of people say cleanliness determines your prosperity. Yes, it does. Look at Singapore, look at Switzerland, look at people who, if your mother ever told you, soap doesn't cost much, she was giving you good advice. Hmm. Now, the the fact that Switzerland has everybody serve in the military, males, and like I said, voluntarily for women, they they can call within 24 hours an armed military of 500,000 people. And the way we write it in the book is, don't mess with Switzerland. Mm-hmm. Even Hitler said, okay, I'll, I'll move through any country, but don't mess with Switzerland. These are the, and you might say, well, those are values of the people there. It's not natural resources because they don't have much natural mm-hmm. resources. And they also know how to make value-added products. When they sell steel from Switzerland, they sell it for about $10,000 a pound. Of course, it has brands like Rolex and other fine watches. These are the values if you look at it empirically. You just close your mind. I'm not going to be socialist. I'm not going to be communist. I'm not going to be democratic or republican. I'm going to find out what works. That's what we mean by objective prosperity. And that's what the book is about. It presents data and facts all the way through. And we tell people don't read it with a predisposition of... Mm -hmm. If it says something I don't like, I'm going to reject it because that's, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican. Now, we describe behavioral economics as something old, traditional economics. Something new, adding psychology and sociology and demographics. Something borrowed from the Austrian economist von Mies and Schumpeter. Mm -hmm. And something blue. Now, when we talk about political systems, what do we really describe people who want policies to help the poor people. That's what behavioral economics is. It's all four of those. It's not one. So don't read the book with a predisposition of, I'm just going to look at the things that agree with what I already thought. If you read it with an open mind, you'll come away with ideas on how you can be more prosperous in the future or how your firm can be more prosperous in the future. And if you do that on a wide scale basis, the nation becomes more prosperous. Now, there's some, there's some, commonalities of colonies. You mentioned earlier colonies. Which nation had the most successful colonies? Oh, I mean, so are we talking at the time or over the long term? Both. And, and I'll, I'll give you examples because mostly they were French or Spanish or British. Mostly
0: they were French or Spanish or British. So which nation, current nation today, Yeah, have colonies or
1: former colonies? Former colonies. The United States. Got to be. Or Canada, Canada. Or Canada. Or Australia. Mm-hmm. Or Hong Kong. Mm-hmm. Which is... British. Much more, which is British until- the British colony. The handover. And the Spanish and French colonies, they all had colonies, but the French colonies and the Spanish colonies didn't produce nations later that were successful as the values that came from Britain. And why, the, the pilgrims, like I said, were communal when they started, but who's, who got the money to bring them over here? They had to pay for that Mayflower ship. Mm-hmm. The answer was entrepreneurs. In French and Spanish colonies, they came from the king down or the queen. In England, they hadn't had to have permission of the king, but they came from poor people, entrepreneurs. In fact, Australia is one of the more successful nations in the world. Where did their original inhabitants come from? Criminals. Yes. They emptied, I think the number was 140,000. It's in the book. I've forgotten the exact number, but uh, 140,000 prisoners and sent those inmates to Australia over a few years. And they started a nation all built by inmates that became one of the most prosperous nations in the world. A very large nation, of course, too. And it's why individuals create prosperity for the whole country, or the whole nation.
2: And so as you come together with somebody and you're, you're trying to break these different pieces down and figure out how to put them together in a way that people are going to get value out of them, You know, how long does a book like this take to come together? And how do you align on different pieces that you agree upon and and go through all this data and and make uh, conclusions? it
1: takes a village to build a book like this. Uh, We started out, and like I mentioned, uh, one of the original viewers said, you need to break it up with case examples. And uh, so we fortunately had a year with the pandemic to write it, and it took about a year. Mm -hmm. This is my 41st book. And Over the years, it took about a year for each, on the average, a a year for each one.
2: how many, is that like 40 hours a week just constantly working on the book?
1: No, no. A lot of people say, when do you find time with your other jobs to write a book? And the answer is from 10 p.m. to 2 a.m. That's mostly when I do my writing. Uh, And why would you work that hard? That's my value system.
0: Well, Roger, it's been great talking to you so far and and appreciate you giving us a little background on the book. Where, If people wanted to buy this book, where can they find it? I'm guessing all the usual suspects, right?
1: All the usual suspects. You know, it used to be that the publisher would make a deal with the printer and they'd print a. Only go to couple Barnes and Noble well, only go to, you know, there's specific I, places. But I remember one of my earlier books, uh, Borders, bought 10 copies for every store. Borders, yeah. Well, they didn't buy any of this stuff. No. <laughs> Actually, Amazon does printing on demand. Mm-hmm. That's why you get it in two days if you're a prime customer. Any city in the U.S. and probably many in the world. So Amazon is easiest. My website is Roger Blackwell business.com. And it has a link that takes you to Amazon for fulfillment. There are a few stores around that have it, but mainly you have to do it online these days.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Makes sense. And so follow-up question, right? What advice would you have for our listeners out there? And other than, hey, go buy this book and check it, you know, read up on prosperity.
1: Well, one of the uh, reviewers of it, she said, I really connected with the, the, the valuable words that... C- move us forward in our lives. Mentors, discipline, education, Mm -hmm. personal responsibility. You're not gonna be possible to be probable that you'll be prosperous if you don't take personal responsibility for it. And that's something that an individual responsibility, if you just say, well, let the government take care of me. When I retire, Mm -hmm. you got a trouble. To young people, I say, start saving now. Wealth and income are different. And many of the people who make fairly high income end up very poor because they don't convert it. And we have a section on how to be an Einstein at investing.
0: Right. Yeah. You know, and this is the one that you mentioned that I constantly talk about here at FMX is discipline, right? Discipline's a muscle. You build it up. That's right. You do small little things every day. And then the big things, when you need discipline on something big, you've been building it up. So discipline is one that people are like, well, how do I get started fixing my discipline? Well, get up and make your bed every morning. One little thing. Right. No
1: matter what your income is, save a little bit, yep. every paycheck, Discipline. even if it's just a dollar sixty-five a day.
0: Yeah. And and it'll just build over time. Right. Discipline is uh, is a huge one for me. But uh, so last question. We've answered it before, but well, I'm going to ask it to you again. And we can go back and compare it to Episode 71. The theme of the show here on Conquering Columbus is live uncomfortably. And uh, without telling you too much about why we chose that, I'm guessing it might relate a little bit to some of the themes of your book. But what do you think of when you hear the phrase, live uncomfortably, and how does it apply to your life? Well,
1: I think about the fall I had because I was dizzy after I had COVID mm-hmm. and cracked a vertebra. Whew, that's uncomfortable. That's uncomfortable. Uh, and I've had to struggle with that for the last few months. Sure. But I've had some experiences in my life that are really great.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I've met you know, President Truman and mm-hmm. worked closely with President H.W. Bush and a lot of top people. But I've also spent time sleeping on a steel bed for six years. In, uh, in a prison situation. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was uncomfortable. Yeah. Uh, but I learned that God goes with you wherever you go in comfortable areas and in uncomfortable areas. And that's how you get through both of them. Fantastic. Well, Roger, thanks so
0: much for joining us and talking about your new book. Really appreciate it and uh, appreciate your time. Thank you. All right, conquerors. thanks so much for tuning in. If you wanna buy the book, go ahead, check it out on Amazon or head over to Roger's website like we talked about previously. But uh, thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed this interview. We'll talk to you next week.